Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And what a beautiful day it is. I hope it's wonderful in your part of the world. And I hope you're looking forward to the show and going to enjoy it as much as... I will, because I'm here with you. And we've got some very interesting people coming up. First up, we have Veda Austin. Oh, my goodness. She's a water researcher. I'm uh, fascinated by this. Not quite sure what I make of it. We'll see. We'll take the interview one step at a time and see what we find out. Also... The incomparable, lovely Phyllis Kitchenin is back, talking traditional diet. Western A. Price Foundation chapter leader, eco-nutritionist. Lovely, lovely lady. We're so blessed to have her. She'll be along. So great show. Remember, you can text me. I love your text. 2057. Email me, inbox at radleycheck.radio. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, here's an interesting topic. Water. Strange molecule, it turns out. And who to talk about water and all its ramifications is water researcher Vida Austin. Good morning, Vida. Hi, so nice to be here. Well, you're going to have to go slow with me because <laughs> I've done a little bit of reading about your work and I, I, am, I am struggling to follow it. So, how did you get into this? Uh, what are you? What were you doing when you suddenly thought, "Oh, I'm going to get into water"? <laughs> well, I was very curious about ten years ago, after reading 
several articles and books about water and the idea that water can store information and share information in a in a kind of freezing method so there were some people that were flash freezing water after exposing it to various emotions various thoughts various words various things like that and uh, then flash freezing it and taking microscopic photos of it and this person, Masaru Emoto, turned out to be not embraced by the scientific community. His work, he cherry-picked his photos to share the very best photos, which sort of suggested what he was trying to say. However, after learning more about that, I was still curious because I noticed there were some other people sharing information that was quite similar and seeing some similar results. I just stopped right there. What yep. does... What was that? How did they freeze it? Quick freeze it. What was that phrase you used? Yep, flash freezing. So that flash was freeze. What's what's flash freezing mean? So that means that there is it's set at a very cold temperature, and so the water transitions into ice very rapidly. And they were looking down a microscope, taking photos of the ice crystals, very similar to snow crystals. Yep. You know, snowflakes. And you, many people have seen them under a microscope or seen them actually in real life where they take on geometries. So what Masaru Emoto was doing, who was a Japanese um, researcher, was that he was exposing water to positive and negative influences. And then he was taking a drop of that water, flash freezing it in a lab environment where you can have a cold lab, which means you're kind of like walking into a giant freezer. So mm -hmm. it's cold the whole time. And then he was filming it and through the microscope as it took on the structures of ice. And what he observed was that yeah. <laughs> the, the ones which formed beautiful geometries, much like snowflakes, came mostly from the uh, influences which were positive. And the so the trick is here that when water is flash freezed, the crystals it forms varies. Yes. It doesn't always form the same crystal structure. Correct. And that when you look down a microscope, you can see those crystals and you can see the structure in which they are. And this researcher was noting the differences and then relating it back to something. I got yeah. that. Okay. Sorry, okay. I was there's a whole lot of jumps there that I didn't I didn't appreciate that when ice is frozen, it forms different shapes and different crystals. Yeah. Which is my ignorance. Okay, I got that. And then he was suggesting that the water was retaining something of its experience or something that had happened to it environmentally and then when it was frozen it would reflect that correct and what were the sort of things that it was reflecting in his view well what he what they were actually very simple what he showed was that water that was given a positive influence for example a prayer might be an example on tap water um, he might see a change. He might see that it goes from one structure to another. So tap water with no influence might fail to form cohesive structures. 
that same tap water with a prayer will start to form very cohesive patterns that look very much like geometry. I mean, this is great, isn't it? Because I'm sort of sitting here and thinking, you must get this a lot. Like, what? Well, that was his work. And he got given extremely hard time about it because uh, because that's suggesting something. It's not even that it's just suggesting something huge, that water is responsive to its environment, to thoughts, words, sounds, etc. cetera, uh, but that not all water is water. And he wrote a book called Messages in Water that became wildly successful. And regardless of whether or not the scientific community didn't embrace him, of which they did not, he was given a very hard time. Um, but he never lied. He always said he openly chose the best photos to display what he was seeing. Uh, but he did, by using about eight contrasting photos, become extremely uh, well-known based on the fact that he opened the door for people to see themselves as bodies of water sensitive to thoughts, words, and environment. By molecular count, not by volume, our body is 99% water. Mm. That means that there are more water molecules in our bodies than stars in the Milky Way. Your eye lens is 99% water. That means we see everything through the lens of water. So I began to research also about a man who was using the same technique as Emoto, didn't become so well known, but his work was fascinating to me. His name was is Laurent Costa. He is a French microscopic photographer of water. He too flash freezes water. But unlike Emoto, who was doing it in a laboratory and had other people doing this in a laboratory for him, Laurent Costa was a citizen scientist. He had a more spiritual view on water. He considered water to be more like a spiritual teacher for him. And rather than wanting to experiment on water, what he wanted to do was simply see what water wanted to show him. So occasionally he would smile at the water before he flash froze it. And as well as seeing geometries in his work like Emoto did, he was seeing imagery. So what he saw down the microscope, smiling back at him in the molecular uh, kind of um, organization of the ice, were smiley faces. He was seeing hearts. He was seeing uh, images that were relative to his thoughts, something that had happened in his day. Um, and it was kind of crazy, amazing. Like he was even seeing fish. They'd just got some fish for their new fish tank. And he had just, it was in his subconscious that he was thinking about fish. And he was seeing these undeniable fish images in the ice, as well as seeing geometries. So at that point, I had never seen art in ice outside of, you know, when when someone carves something out of an ice sculpture yes. or something. So he was looking down the microscope and seeing these smiley faces. 
And I, um, I worked professionally as an oil painter for many, many years. I designed some stamps for New Zealand Post. I did lots of really things that I really enjoyed. So I naturally see the world through the lens of water uh, and through an artistic lens. But I also am a researcher. So I'm, you know, have mul I'm multifaceted like so many people. And I just became curious about this phenomenon that he was seeing art that was clearly recognizable. It wasn't pareidolia where you're making something up in your mind and you think that that kind of little thing looks looks like something. Well, I feel that way about astronomy. And they say, oh, you know, Orion, and I'm looking at it, and that's this belt, and that's his pants. And I'm thinking, no, I just see four dots. You know? <laughs> I don't have that imagination. Yeah, um, that does I'm fascinated by this because I'm of, I'm – I'm ready to think outside any square and any box at the moment. Um, but that is amazing. So then what did you do? So then I, as a researcher, I start researching. And then I end up coming across this really interesting man by the name of Thomas Hieronymus. And he made a, an observation. He was a radionic engineer. And he made an observation that when he went into a Parisian meat market on a very, very cold day, when there was frost, it was very cold. And he, he noticed that the freshly placed organs of an animal appeared to be affecting the way the frost froze on the glass behind where it was placed. For example, the frost above a liver organ looked like a liver organ, was the same shape and so on and so forth with these different organs. And he 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 was a very interested, interesting man. And he thought very much, very openly. And and he he actually put it down to there being water in the blood. Because he's he thought there was this kind of life force energy still emanating out of these organs, even though they were not attached to an animal anymore. Now, each organ of a body has something called a sonic signature. It's a bit like a cymatic imprint of form and function. For anyone that doesn't know what a cymatic imprint is, is that cymatics, C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S, is the study of um, sound through water. So you can also use it through sand. So you can, some people sprinkle sand on a box and then they put a frequency um, on the metal plate, this kind of the top of this metal plate really, it's not it's exactly a box. And what they'll find is that certain frequencies, the sand literally moves into geometries and into shapes. And the same thing happens when you use water and sound through water is that it rapidly moves and arranges itself into shapes using frequencies. And when it's with water, it's not something you can observe because it's water. But when you, you flash, you, oh, you can. For cymatics, they're not freezing. Cymatics is simply where you shine light on the water so you can see, and you can see the patterns with your naked eye. I see. Kind is that ca caused by the movement of the water? Yes, yes. What, what, yeah, I see. The water's moving to so through the, the sound, vibration of the frequency. Sound. And you can see that movement and yes. it changes with the different frequencies. Correct. Wow. People can see this if they have a singing bowl 
you know, those Tibetan singing bowls, and if you put water inside it and you play it, you'll see the patterns that form in the water. The frequency, my goodness. Even um, even if you if you have a, 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 a um, crystal glass, wine glass, you know how you can make the sound by wetting your mm-hmm. finger mm-hmm. And around the rim? Mm-hmm. If you put water in there, you'll see the patterns forming even on the surface there. So sound makes water move. And certain frequencies make it move into form. I can see why you got yourself lost in this. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so interesting. So Thomas was was had a hypothesis on what he was observing in the frost. And that was that these sonic signatures within the organs held a vibration still. Mm-hmm. The blood was still flowing. It wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't very, it was a very newly, a new organ. So water, and this is probably too, too, already a little too far, but without, and we probably need hours for me to even just go into this, but water is always in relationship with itself. It's always communicating information with itself in all its, these different stages. So the water and the blood was essentially sharing information with the water in the air and the water in the air absorbed that information and when it hit the glass surface, immediately formed into ice, which took on the shape of the form of the information it absorbed. Now, this was Thomas Hieronymus's theory and what I really, really enjoyed about that was that he was seeing these shapes form with his naked eye. Now, 10 years ago, I didn't have a microscope, but I had had a healing experience with some um, with some deep aquifer water here in New Zealand after a horrendous car accident that I had been in 20-odd years prior. And, uh, and so I was already interested in water because I'd seen that some waters seem to be able to do things that other waters can't. And this particular water I was drinking had a very naturally high pH. I was able to collect it from the source. The man was only at the time, all those years ago, giving it to cancer patients. And he um, gave me some, and I had some pretty incredible healing experiences with it. So I thought, well, if I use some of that water, the secret with all of these people seems to be in the freezing, where the unseen becomes seen. So I thought, well, I, you know, I have my imagination. I'll give it a good old Kiwi go, see what happens, you know. And I, I thought, well, what happens if I just think of something? I'm going to, you know, basically project that thought into my Petri dish of water. I had a Petri dish. I was working on another project separate to this. And uh, stick it in my freezer and just see what happens. You know, it was the most rudimentary thought I had, but I thought, well, you know, I may as well give it a go. I was a new, like my children were young then. And so, you know, I was just, I was just having fun with it because we read a lot of things. It's very different when you do them yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm very much interested in seeing things for myself if I can. So I got my Petri dish. I put some of the water the um the uh artisan water in there and i've used all kinds of waters over the many many years 
But this was my first time. So I thought I'll just use this water. It seems like a good choice. And as I'm there thinking, oh God, what am I going to think about? Because I don't know even why that became like a problem. I was like, what should I project? What thought should I think? It's like, usually I don't have so many problems with thinking. So anyway, I'm there thinking, what am I going to think about? And there's this little bit of fluff floating around in the water. So I was like, oh my God. So I put my hand in to take the fluff out. And I, and I consciously thought, oh, I wonder if my hand will have any impact on the water's quote unquote memory, because I had no idea if that was even a real thing. You know, I, I, I didn't know. I was just curious. So I thought, oh, well, that thought will do. And I shoved it into the freezer with the peas and the broccoli and the ice cream and everything else. And I forgot about it. Um, I came back hours later and I was like, oh yeah, let's see what, what's going on in there. And I pulled it out of the freezer. I held it up to the light and I took my very first photo on my iPhone. And that photo, which I'm going to explain about what I saw in a second, has literally launched just under 50,000 photos of water responding in what appears to be an incredibly intelligent way. So bringing it back to my very first test, what I saw was an image of a hand. And it wasn't just an image of a hand. It looked like an X-ray of my hand. Um, I inherited my, my mother's um, on both sides of my hands. These are worse. This was the hand I used because I'm right-handed. Crooked fingers on either side of my middle finger. So in the actual image, I first image I got, not only was it a hand, it depicted my hand with my two bent fingers between on either side of my middle finger. And I have to tell you, I was freaked out. I was like, it was a little bit unnerving and exciting, but I was not expecting it. And I mean, and it was huge macroscopically. So my petri dishes are about the size of my hand, so about 10 centimeters in diameter. So what the size of the hand was, you know, nearly a five centimeter size. That's actually quite huge compared to the microscopic photos that people like Masaru Moto and Laurent Costa were, t were looking at and taking. So I could see and, it. And just, just tell me about this photo. It wasn't like a photo of Bigfoot fuzzy or UFO in the way in the distance. And if you think oh. hard about it, you think, oh, that could be a UFO. What you had a photograph of, did you have to use a lot of imagination to see the hand? I'll show it... you. I can oh, even show yes. you over here. Show me, just... and I'll tell it to the audience. I've got a picture here. I've just written a book, which is coming out in a couple of days. It's easier if I show you actually on the screen. But this was the hand. Oh, my you... God. That is it. That is a hand. Yeah. And I can see the crooked fingers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it and looks like an x-ray, right? It looks like the it bones. It absolutely does. And so just to give context, like I have that a That was a picture of a Petri dish with absolutely. an iPhone. Yes, it was. And. I would be freaked out by that. Yeah, it was. And so I. I you actually, don't sound like a person making this up. No, I'm not because I've done it in it like for so prolifically now for literally 10 years. I've just got a book of over, there's over 1,500 photos in the book, but I also teach people how to do it. So there's a lot more to this, um, but this is how I began. And 
I began by freezing water solid. I haven't done that now in nine years because I discovered a specific technique that gives me much clearer photos. And I learned a lot more about water as I discovered there is a new science of water out there. Now, the um, what kind of made this go from being a potential random photo, what I like is that you could recognize it as a hand. What I'd like to say is that there is a scientist by the name of Dr. Gerald Pollack, and he is one of the leading scientists in the world of water. Um, he uh, gave me some suggestions with my work um, fairly early on. He said, why don't you get 25 of your photographs simply and put a survey together and simply say, what does this image look like to you? Don't give any more information than that. Don't go say anything else. Don't lead people into anything. And just circulate it through social media. See what happens. So I actually gave the survey to friends which they circulated it out. So no one even knew it came from me. People didn't know what they were looking at. They didn't know it was ice. They they didn't know anything like that. They simply had to answer the question. So there were 295 people that did the survey and 85% of people were able to recognize the ice image for what the influence was prior to freezing. Now, out of... All of those 25 images, there were three images where 100% of people were able to recognize the image for what the influence was, and the hand was one of those. Art can be subjective. Any, any, anyone can say that there's so many artists in the world that create different art. But the the amount of people that could recognize the imagery for what the influence was, was extremely high and has continued to be extremely high over these years. And I think that that was an important thing that he suggested that I do because many people will say, well, we're just making up things in your mind that it looks like this and it looks like this. Uh, so I think that that's helpful to know that, that these are images that can actually be recognized for what they the influence was, which is really amazing on its own. So after I, I showed that photo of the hand to my son and I said, hey, Rama, what does this look like to you? And, you know, he just said, that oh, looks like a hand. Mom looks a bit like a creepy hand because it does look like an x-ray of a hand. And then I thought, well, what water is going to be informed naturally where it's not about me projecting anything, you know, what if I get some seawater? So I, at the time, you know, I lived near the ocean, so I went and I collected some, some seawater and I poured a very thin layer into my Petri dish and I stuck it in the freezer. This was my second ever <laughs> uh, crystallography. And I was nervous sitting outside the freezer because I thought, well, if I see something relative to the ocean in here, Maybe this isn't random. And the second photo I ever took literally was of a fish. There is the outline of the fish with the fins and the perfectly round eye and the gill and the tail. And it, it, that's really when my household freezer literally became my most used household appliance. Mm. And it just became addictive. 
playing with the in this field without expectation of what I would see, but just curiosity. My father, you may have heard of him, his name is Bill Hohepper. He's a famous, famous Maori fisherman. And so coming from different perspectives, I also see water a little perhaps in a more spiritual way, a little bit like Laurent Costa did, the man I gave you that example of. So I'm going into this thinking, well, I think there's more to water than meets the eye here. How can it possibly be doing this? Because this seems almost unbelievable, right, to me too. Unbelievable. Yeah, but I keep seeing it. And so the next – And other people see it in the same way. That's, I think, one of the points – if, if I was just sitting here thinking, saying to friends like, oh, you know, do you think you see a dog in this picture? And they're like, eh, nah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe it's just you. I probably wouldn't have gone very far with this. But the fact that other people also could see and I would ask them, what do you think this looks like before I would tell them what the influence was? So, you know, it just became fun for me. It was, and it's still fun for me. It's just that it's evolved a lot. And so after freezing water solid and seeing for the most part, and not always, so I would see when I would freeze water solid, um, a very clear image in about one in every eight times I did it. And when I discovered my new technique, which is very simple and I'll explain it, I started to see it almost every time. Or at least every, you know, couple of times. Because your freezer isn't flash freezing it particularly, is it? No. So I use my regular old household, right? And so everyone's household freezer is set at different um, temperatures. So it's going to freeze differently for different people based on that fact. Plus different waters freeze at different times. So I find that tap water freezes quicker than spring water. Seawater tends to um, take the longest to freeze because it has the salt. So, you know, you have these these little things. You get to know more about the different types of water that you're using. Distilled water, I found, doesn't give very clear results. And it's interesting because Masaru Amoto was using mostly distilled water. I know that they did use, um, like, polluted water and then bless it, and then show what it looked like afterwards. So I know they didn't only use distilled water, but distilled water lacks the salts and minerals. And if you think we are a body full of of water and salt and minerals, so if you pardon the pun, you boil someone down. (laughs) This sounds horrible, but just for the analogy, we are salt, water, minerals, and consciousness. Mm. Even when someone is cremated, the ashes are salts. What I, I think is really interesting as you kind of start diving deeper into this um, is that we literally are like an, an ocean. But more importantly, or not necessarily more importantly, but alongside our entire lives that we are incredibly attached to, no one will say, no, I haven't had a life or I don't have a life. And, and people say, yes, I am alive. I'm having a conversation with you. But what does it mean to actually be a person 
a living person in this world, well, it means that our entire life, when we look at it and we tell our life, we're telling them our life based off the memories that we have of it. We are a body of water that stores and holds memories that we are deeply attached to and that basically make up our life. Because yesterday, I remember having a very busy day. I did X, Y, Z. I did four podcasts in a row. But, but that's And that's now my memory that I'm telling you from. And then we have our imagination. And so we are bodies of water storing memories. We are incredibly good at it. And that's very important to us. So the idea that water stores, if you, it might not be the right term, but this idea of memory is not so foreign if you look at what living beings have the ability to do. And no, I guess, but it's a funny thing for us to get to. Yes. Because we think of water as something that we two, drink that takes two elements hydrogen and oxygen joined and that's it quite simple yes and we think of our bodies as dna and microscopic um cellular organelles and a central nervous system and all this complexity but then of course we're also aware that at a subatomic all these vibrations and rotations and extraordinary stuff going on that we can only dimly understand. That's right. Even if you spend your life in it and someone like me struggles to grasp all of this. And so you do open your mind beyond what's just every day you think common sense and say, wow, I wonder. And that's what you did, didn't you? That's you right. Wondered. I wondered. That's how it all <laughs> began. I just was very curious. And then I, and then it just became, and it was fun. Oh, it'd be huge fun. I but I do it. my children too. Yeah. So my children were doing it as well. In fact, my son, I get, get to where this new technique part, so I started to, to get more familiar with the work of Dr. Jerry Pollack. You know, I became friends with him, and then he recommended that I do the survey and all of that, which is why I mentioned it. But um, he wrote a book called The Fourth Phase of Water. So we have a liquid, a solid, a gas, and then a type of gel or plasma. And that type of gel or plasma is the kind of water that's inside of our cells. So you talked about the workings of the body. You know, there are layers of structured, ordered water, molecularly ordered water that surround our DNA. And if the water didn't surround the DNA, the, water, the DNA could not coil. It's so vital wow. that it's there. So he was, he um, is, a, is working in all kinds of incredible areas of science, but they made this really interesting observation that this, what is a, what is the fourth phase of water? He calls it exclusion zone or easy water. And that is because 
they did an experiment where they got some water and they put it into uh, a glass, a kind of container, a little glass scientific container with no lid, a little beaker thing. And then they put something called microspheres in it, which allows you to see any movement. Yeah. And then they put a thing called a naffion tube, which is a little see-through tube, really, in there. And when you look through a microscope, what you see, if there is fourth phase water in the water, so you often have this fourth phase water within regular water. So he defines it as like bulk water and crystalline water. So when you look through the microscope, what you see is that the water starts to flow through the tube, self-propels round and round and round through the tube, over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the reason that it does that is that when there is fourth phase water in the water, it basically pushes out solates. So if there is salts and dissolved minerals, these kinds of things, total dissolved solids in the water, which most water has, it will push it away, creating an area, a very, it's quite large microscopically, but Matt, it, it, you can't really see it with your naked eye. But it's it's actually quite large, and it, it's, a, it's a space of a type of water where there are no solates in it. Mm. And it is, is more viscous. It absorbs more light. It has a slight, It has a negative charge, which is a very potent thing. And when it pushes the other kind of water out with all the sites and everything, that becomes positively charged. So you have a negative and a positive, which essentially is creating a battery, which becomes like the little batteries of our cells. When a cell is healthy, it is negatively charged. When a cell is unhealthy, it is positively charged. The earth is negatively charged. One of the reasons that we feel so good when we walk along um, the beach barefoot is that we're getting positive char- charge coming up, um, negative charge, sorry, coming up through the um, through the beach. And there's the the sea is also negatively charged, so we're getting negative ions and breathing in them and through the air. So it's the negative charge that actually makes us um, gives us energy, and it's the positive charge that tends to be more oxidizing. So. He made this discovery that there are specific things. Now, what's interesting about it within the body is that rather than being H2O, it converts H2O into H3O2. So Mm -hmm. it has extra hydrogen and oxygen atom. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, it also gives it more ability to absorb more light. So we are a little bit like liquid crystal walking solar panels. and. We are are not taught about this so much in schools. And we're really taught about the sort of hydrological cycle more than anything else. But what's interesting to me, and I'm like, you know, I started getting very curious about all things to do with water. And I go into detail in lots of areas because it takes you down so many tributaries when you start searching. Um, But you know, I, I was invited uh, to several times to go into schools and to teach a mix of sort of water science with art projects and teach the children how to do this. And we would have fun doing this, right? And I'd say to the children, if your skin was invisible and your organs were see-through, what would you look like? 
And every single one of them would come back with rivers, streams, waterfalls. How funny. And one child said that he would look like um, a brain-shaped cloud with electrical rain shining down in the shape of a person. And so when when we're taught these these ways without being taught any further thinking or the opportunity, to, I think, really to think for ourselves, not so much being told how to think, but kind of being given opportunities to, to think more, a little deeper. Um, it's very impactful because you could then ask the question, if your skin was invisible, it would go to see through, what would you look like? But then how would you recognize your mother or your father or your loved one? And when I asked that question, the little girl said, well, I'd always recognize my mummy because of the way she feels. So these children have a natural way of being able to kind of see the world from a perspective that actually is very simple. But when we cut ourselves, we leak, we bleed. When we are at our deepest emotional states, whether it's laughing or whether it's in our deepest sorrow, we cry. When we go to the bathroom, we leak. When we, when we exercise, we sweat. We are only a cut away from fluid. Mm. Yeah, the bathroom away, back away from fluid. And when you start thinking that every single life form on this earth, whether it's within an egg, whether it is from uh, amniotic fluid, you know, however things are conceived, there is a fluid around them. And this is of that very special, special type of water I was just talking about. Uh, I, I, we only have a limited time, so there's only so much I can probably go into because there's so many areas to go into. But I began becoming more curious about what when these patterns were starting to freeze. So I just started opening my freezer earlier and earlier and earlier until I looked in there one time at about five minutes and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Look, there's liquid on top and ice underneath. I wonder what's going on with the ice underneath. So I literally just took it out, tipped the liquid away, and photographed what is called crystallography. That's the ice that has made formations on the dish that was stuck on the dish. That is my technique now. That is all I use. Because what I saw and what we've actually managed to film is that when you film water, freezing from beginning to end, you see three stages of freezing, three main stages of freezing. You see the first stage, which is where water um, starts to freeze and form, and then there's a still liquid on top. So it's kind of in two parts. Mm -hmm. The second stage is where there is two ice, it's like an ice sandwich. There's two layers mm -hmm. of ice, one on the top, one underneath, and there's liquid water in between. Sometimes you can pull out ice that hasn't frozen solid, and you can see there's liquid in the middle, mm -hmm. two stages, and then you have a solid. I think of it as spirit, blood, and body. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that's probably going too far. So the stage, I thought, so I took it out, and I held it up to the light, and I saw imagery that was far, far, far more clear, there was more light coming through. When you see my work, you'll notice there are colors that come through it. That's because I like to play with the colors in the background because the ice is thin enough to be able to play with that. And it sometimes helps you to see the imagery a little better. Some people that have done it 
have a do it very scientifically. They have one like background color and they just take photos the best that they can. Now I'm not in a cold room. I'm in my kitchen. So you have to take photographs quickly because the ice melts, especially in our heat, right? And we've been having in New Zealand. So what we've I've I've seen now after doing this for 10 years and now teaching thousands of people around the world how to do it is that there are three things that you will see if you do this if you do this technique. I've just explained one. You can see an artistic expression. The, the, the other option is that you might see what is called a signature pattern of water. So over the years, I've delved into a lot of different areas of water, but I have discovered, and I'm sure amongst other people discovered it in different ways, but crystallographically, you can tell the difference between tap water, rainwater, spring water, seawater, filtered water, um, stream water. You can see the difference. There's a difference. So if, I, if I gave you a semi-frozen Petri dish and you could see that pattern, or I took a picture of it and sent it to you, yeah. you could deduce what water it was. Yeah. Yeah. If, it show, if it's showing a signature pattern. So like I said, there are three ways that water will share information. Mm -hmm. The third way seems probably to some people one of the most crazy but at the same time, it's the one I've got the most repeatability with and the one in which I've been invited to speak in scientific conferences about simply to share because it's so unusual for water to show so much repeatability in this particular area of freezing. So I, I've coined, I've just coined it hydroglyphs. Um, it's just a word I made up uh, and I might have even heard somebody talking about that kind of term and it sounded sounded kind of cool but over the many years of using this technique and having had my children play with me and do this too like for example my son um rama his name's rama his father's part indian and he was named after lord lord rama now in hindu uh beliefs the lord rama was always got a bow and arrow and mm. so my son was trying to con me into getting him a bow and arrow. And he's a little guy then, you know, and he just wanted to have some fun. And and he said, Mom, if I can, if I can, this isn't his exact words, but basically if I can project a picture of an arrow, like a thought of an arrow and see an arrow in the ice, will you get me a bow and arrow? <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, well, points for, you know, ingenuity. So I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, Rama, then. All right. And so um, he did. He He sat there and he imagined that he was getting his bow and arrow and pulling it back and pinging an arrow into the water. And then he froze it. He used my technique and he took the photograph. And um, I know it's probably better to show it to you um, through, um, through the Zoom video thing. But... Um, but you can see it in this picture. Yes. And you can oh see how clear the metal head is. And yes. like, but that's the difference between my old technique and my new technique. You can see color and light and clarity. And shadow and, yeah. and it's like 3D. Yeah. So it's extremely different. And, and so that's where you d don't fully freeze. You just get let it freeze on the bottom and then tip the water off. Correct. Correct. Wow. And, then and that's why you get that 
you get it like mountains in the 3D. Yes. Uh, because it's it's frozen with to different depths. That's correct. I, um you must have so much fun. Oh my god, my life is a dream. I love what I do. <laughs> so it's because you never actually know what's going to happen. There's there's a lot more to that. It's like if I'm had a really rough day and I'm frustrated. I've been on the motorway and stuck in traffic and the children been driving me crazy or something like that. And I come back and somebody's perhaps um, I'm committed to doing some crystallography for someone because uh, I do that sometimes. And I'm and I think oh, I need to do this for this person. I'm only giving you this example because it happened. And I was just oh, I've been I just had a rough day. It wasn't that I was, I was actually annoyed. I was just really in an annoyed mood. So I go to do the crystallography and I get nothing, nada, nothing. And I'm like, and in fact, the water behaves in a really weird way. It starts to kind of, the ice seems to thicken and cloud over. Normally I see very clear crystallography with the light coming through. But when I've been angry and frustrated and annoyed, water will not design complex imagery. It's not just a machine that will just do what it's told. It, it seems to have its own life force energy. Do and you think? Do you think that some people then would be better at this than others because they have, I don't know. Some undisclosed, misunderstood technique or radiance. I'm thinking of water divining, right? Mm -hmm. Which is impossible, but it, to all intents and purposes, it works. <laughs> yeah. And very sophisticated engineers won't dig a well unless someone water divines it for them. I don't know. That's but there's true. some people that can divine water. And so they can through their body with a stick, they can discover water meters under the ground. So they would maybe have a more developed relationship and therefore when they were doing your technique might get better results and maybe you'd get better results than I would if I did it. Do you think that's a possibility? I don't know. I'll have to try. I, I think that that's the thing. It's like um, I get people all the time try to get me to do work for them because they think I'm just really, really good at it. Uh, and I, my encouragement is to try it for yourself because I'd rather teach someone how to fish than just give them a fish. And I, I so kind of walks, walk the, or me through. So I go, and I say, I'm interested in that. I mm. think it's all bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Yeah. Let me, let me try it. Yeah. What would I do? So I'll tell you that in just a sec. The third thing you might see is something called hydroglyphs. And there's like almost like I've, I would say that there's kind of symbols or um, designs in ice that are very repeatable. And um, I've got a lace, nearly uh, around 40 of them. And for each one, I show a for example, about 64 examples of that. And they came from um, originally from using 
from from using music. You know, I, I discovered something very weird, um, and I, I can actually we can do some crystallography right now. I can show you um, how how to do it, and I can describe it as we're going along. Okay. But um, when Masaru Emoto's work came out and his book, my my son, when he was much younger, I mean he's sixteen now. He read the he he saw the book he saw the pictures and he came to me and he said, "Mum, I think what hates me," and I'm like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> and he said, "Well, because according to this work, because Masaru Emoto did did work very very much in contrast. Sometimes you have to be a little careful. As humans, we really love to see the best and the worst of things. Mm. There's a lot of stuff in between, and if a child can't identify with either one, sometimes they just assume the worst." And so he had done heavy metal and classical music. And so the heavy metal failed to really form structure and the classical music forms beautiful structures. And so my son saw it and and he liked to listen to Tupac. And he says, look, Tupac swears, you know, clearly it doesn't like swear words and this and, 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 and he just said, I think water hates me. And I'm like, well, we can't have that. And I don't actually believe that. And I'm pretty sure whoever did the heavy metal probably didn't like it. So I don't think that water is ever in judgment. I think of water on a more sort of, if you will, more of a spiritual space as an observer. Um, there is, I'm sure I could probably go down a whole other level if I go into that conversation about wairua, you know, the word for spirit in Maori. Is wider. It means very, very rudimentary. I mean, it has bigger meanings and things, but it's sent two waters, the spiritual and physical waters. Mm. And I think that I mean that there's a lot there I can talk about, and I do talk about in my in my podcasts and whatnot. But for now, um, we go back to my son. So I start using music, and what I do is that I'll put my dish of water beside the speaker, leave the room, come back freeze the water and some of those songs and I did loads of genres and it was super fun and interesting because what I would often see is that there'd be a word that water seemed to pick up on and design so an example would be stairway to heaven yeah. every time I used stairway to heaven I would see this this image that looked just like a ladder every time yes and I did it over a period of months so I, I was oh a busy mum. Obviously, I'm doing other things as well. But and I and I think that's even more telling is that I'm not doing it all in one day, using the same dish and all of the stuff because people could say, well, even within homeopathy, there's often something that these trace elements still left mm. behind. It could be that. So I was doing it with different water over months. So in the early stages, I did it, you know, about eight times, and I kept seeing this kind of similar, the same image, the same design, different backgrounds, but I'd always see this sort of, like, ladder symbol. And I started to get curious about that, and I'm like, I wonder if that actually means stairway, because that's what it looks like, and that's, you know, in the song a lot. So I literally just, I mean, there's nothing stopping me from doing anything, right? or anyone else. <laughs> so I literally just wrote the word stairway. I put my dish of water on top of it for 30 seconds. I like that time frame. I work with alongside a lot of quantum physicists that are starting to explain my work through 
that field, that science. Um, in fact, one of, uh, okay, stick with the story. So, <laughs> so what they, I did was put the dish on it, 30 seconds, remove it, and then just freeze it. And I kept seeing the stairway glyph. And I'm like, okay, well, let's just keep trying. Because in my mind, 50 was not a random number. So over the course of several months, I did it 50 times by using a word as an influence. And I kept seeing this design. Only one time did I not see it. And that was also when I was had a really bad day. So um, it was really uh, interesting and curious. And I'm like, well, okay, well, what do you do with a stairway? And I thought, well, you, you climb up a stairway. because So I wrote climb up. And I started to see this ladder again. And I thought, well, what happens if I write climb down? And I didn't get it. So I'm like, oh. What does this mean? Like, this is sort of weird and crazy. Like, I don't really understand. But I just kept doing it because it was fun and because I was curious. And after now, I've started to use different words doing the same thing. And I've discovered that there are some words where I get symbols which repeat. For example, another one might be for the word ring. Like I have, uh, and it also seems to come up with the word marriage, and it and it's a ring in the ice, and it's very three dimensional. What's curious about that is that I was sent a wedding invitation, and I just had my dish of water near it. The wedding invitation, just the main word was was wedding and marriage of the marriage of so and so and so. There was no picture of a ring on it or anything like that. Uh, didn't even say the word ring. And I froze my water, and this very clear, very three-dimensional ring was was in there. And I do show videos of what it looks like to show it's not a bubble, like some people think. Maybe it's a bubble. But you actually see all the little bubbles underneath it. The ring is more of a, in a plasmary state, and it looks exactly like a ring. And... It was so surprising to me because I realized that it had been beside the wedding invitation, but it designed a ring. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting because obviously rings symbolize, can symbolize marriage. And I started to play with words and I would use the word marriage and I would see this shape appear over and over and over again. And then I was like, well, what about rings? So you know, I was thinking of Lord of the Rings and all of this. And so, um, you know, I put the the dish of water on top of um, the image of the Lord of the Rings, you know, the, the word Lord of the Rings. And I saw the the symbol again. And it's there. And it just kind of continued on. And I know it sounds nuts, <laughs> but but I think because I'm simply sharing what I say, sometimes fact is stranger than fiction. Yes. And oh, my goodness. And so I, I now have like these symbols and what we've found, because I have other people, obviously water doesn't read English. So it's not just that it's not just reading words. And I have people using the same word in lots of different languages. And what's even more crazy to me and amazing and inspiring really is that the word for water in English is a very basic, like we understand water, that word is just a, it's, it, we know what we mean when we say that. 
But the word for water in Hebrew, I mean, Hebrew is such a complex language that each letter has its own meanings. So the word for water means multiple things. Like it's a very deep, deep meaning in Hebrew. So not only do we see the, the wavy symbol for water, which is which is a it's like takes over the dish with these all these little waves like fire, but you also see other little symbols in there for when we're using the word for water in Hebrew compared to when we use water itself just in English. Do you so know this like, is this is a terrible thing because we're running out of time. Yes. <laughs> you want reality check radio? It's real talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Vida Austin. We're having our minds expanded in ways we never thought they could be expanded. I want to go back and ask you, how do I do this? Oh, good question. So um, I'm going to move you over so that I know that people are listening in. Do you have hundreds and hundreds of fridges? <laughs> no, I have I have one fridge. I have one fridge and I have my favorite Petri dishes that I use as well. Um so I'm going to stick you on top of the blender here. It sounds I very good, but anyway, it's so that I can prop the the computer up. So okay. you can see here I have Petri dish, and it's glass. I use glass because glass is essentially made of silica. Silica is a type of crystal. Crystals store information. They're in all of our technology, and it helps water to store information for longer. Um, so that's it's a large glass petri dish yeah yep. about the size of your hand yeah your crooked two fingers i saw yeah 10 centimeters in diameter now what we're just going to do is show you how to do it so i'm just going to go over here you can see me i'm going to use the tap water yep. there's a ratio for how much water to put in it's about it's about it so i'm going to show you what that is if you tip it it's about it's approximately two tablespoons of water if you tip it Three quarters should be empty and a quarter should be pulling. Got it. So that's, so that's tipping it to the edge. Yep. So that's the ratio for any size dish you use. And if mm -hmm. you want to start using it right now and you can't wait, you can even do it in like a Pyrex glass baking tray. Okay. So my Petri, my, my freezer is set at the moment at minus 14 degrees Celsius. You can see I have stuff in my freezer. We have stuff in there. And that's it. So it's in there. So if you can put your timer for me um, on while I go and grab my phone, it's for five minutes and 30 seconds. Now, if your freezer is making a sound, your timing is usually good. If your freezer is kind of clunked off and it's not making any sound. Sometimes How long do you want the timer for? Five minutes and 20 seconds, please. I'll just grab my phone. This is crazy. <laughs> I'm setting my phone for five minutes and 20 seconds. I yeah. don't believe this. How can this be radio? Okay. <laughs> 518, 517, 516. I'm underway. Okay, great. So, um, if I can't hear my freezer making a sound right now. So, that if it takes a little longer, and we have to go, then at least people can get an idea. They can learn how to do this. My website. If it comes out with a boiled little fat man, I'll freak out. <laughs> well, I didn't give any thought about what 
we just put it in there. I'm just showing you the technique. So we'll see what we'll see. But if we see something different than the patterns I would normally see in the tap water, then there's probably been some change. So but that was that wasn't even sitting around. It was tap water straight into the dish and straight into the freezer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At minus 14. That's quite cold for a freezer, I think. Oh, it's it's pretty pretty normal. Actually, my original when I first started this, I was working in a freezer which was minus twenty three, which I really love doing. I actually brought this one down because most people's freezers are around about this, mm. um, unless they have a really old freezer. So I'm I'm just laughing to myself because I can imagine you on someone else's show and being called a cooker or something, right? Because it's so weird that we're doing this. When when I I looked at this interview, I thought, this is insane. (laughs) What do your friends think? Well, honestly, I I actually have a lot of support because I think it's because I'm not trying to tell people how How to live, what to to do. I'm just like, this is something I found. I kind of want to share it with people to see what, what happens. It's just as much, like, interesting. I think there's a science in seeing if people get one of the three patterns. Of and, tell, and tell me, um, it, for listeners, while this is counting down, we're 319, how do they find more out about you and your work? They can just go to my website. They can learn how to do it over the, on the website. Um, it's my name, betaaustin.com. Beta Austin. Is that, that sounds an Indian name, Beta. Yeah, it is. It is. My mother... Interestingly, she came over on a Russian ship from England and she made friends with this Russian woman um, that worked on the ship and her name was Vida. And uh, she just called me that. And then over the years, I have had a lot to do with the Indian community and um, they always call me Veda because it's spelt the same as the Vedic scriptures. Mm. So, um, so I, yeah, I actually, even my second name is Indian because my mum spelled, it was meant to be Karen, but she spelled it K-A-R-A-N. Um, and in Hindu mythology, that is Arjuna's brother's name. So I actually have these two Indian names. And married in India. Well, I, I, yeah, my, here's my ex-husband now, but oh. we get on by and it's all good. And so I have part Indian children, which is, which is wonderful. And they're such blessings. Yes. Yeah. Vita Karen Austin. Oh my goodness. And Rama, your son. We're on two minutes, one second. Okay. So I don't think I can hear this. It's not making a sound. So I hope it doesn't take too long. So it can take between that five minute mark and sometimes up to eight minutes. And in some people's freezers, when I do this on the workshops that I do, Sometimes it can take up to 15 minutes if they have, if they're not using a dish, a petri dish. The thicker the glass, the longer it takes to freeze. So um, you have to be mindful. But what you're looking for is liquid on top and ice underneath. That's what you want to see. And then you need to wipe the back of the dish because the frost will form on the back and you don't want to have that kind of distracting from the imagery. And so, so to find your webpage, just Google Veda Austin, V-E-D-A, Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N, mm-hmm. Veda Austin. Yeah. And you're just out there sharing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I, and is it quite a thing? Is there quite a little community around the world? Like I get, I go, I speak all over the world. No. I'm, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I share all the time on Instagram, which is Vader Austin underscore Water. So, and I share other people's work all the time too. I have a group of nearly five. Uh, no, no, I think it's like. 1,500, nearly 2,000 people just sharing who, who are doing the work and um, sharing the work that I'm using the technique. I speak at conferences all over the place. I do podcasts nearly every single day. I'm on Gaia at the moment and a new one that's coming out called Divine Science where I'm in. Like, okay, Vader, yeah. we're on the countdown. Six, okay. five, four, three. Phone ready. Go. <laughs> It's my time again. Oh, I'm, I've never been this excited. This is live TV. No, live radio. But it feels like TV. I'm getting out of the... I've got to be describing it for our listeners. We're getting out of the freezer. What I want you to see... a picture. So you can see how there's ice that's formed. Oh, yeah. This is the picture on the phone. Yeah. So we can see there's already ice formed in the ice, in the water. And, and there's a pattern. And there's patterns. This part over here, yeah, there's yeah. packages underneath. It's the is the spinach, and then there's that liquid. It probably could use longer, but we're going to pull it out now, just just because we're on a time schedule. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this is a scientific moment. Oh wow! Okay, there's a perfect <laughs> there's perfect triangle in this, and I do want to show you that this has been something that I've been using lately. Um, that was in the last the dish last time. So I tip the liquid water away. Yeah, so pouring the water out. And then see that triangle right there? Perfect triangle. There's yeah. a perfect triangle. And I would like you to see this that triangle. triangle. That triangle isn't sort of part of another pattern. It is a perfect triangle. And what are you holding up beside I'm holding it? Up this, this organ pyramid that was right beside you. just couldn't see it because it was underneath the computer. Right beside the dish. So just so you know. It's picked up that triangle. Yeah. So that's how it works. I wouldn't have believed. You're like a magician. I wouldn't not have believed that, that if I hadn't not, seen I'm just, it. I'm literally just showing you what You I know see. how when you see something and you think, no, nah, it couldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think ancient wisdom has been around a long time. And I think indigenous wisdom. Too, and you just need to look into what is talked about around water and creation. I mean, in, even in the Bible, water is uh, mentioned 722 times more than love, worship, and faith. Uh, someone I know thinks that hydrogen is the spirit of water, and that plasma is the mind of water, and that liquid water is the body that houses the spirit of water. So there's a lot there. But well, we can find out from going to your web page. I have to say, Vader, did I say that right? Yes. I have to say, I came into this interview thinking, oh, I don't know. Water, thoughts, memory, woo woo. I had, this is crazy. But then you started talking. And you're so reasonable. Like you're not <laughs> you're not kooky or anything, right? So I thought, oh well. And then you did that. It's 
quite wonderful. And anyone can do it at home and they should, right? Absolutely. It's super easy and fun and cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, look, thank you so much for coming on. That was Veda Austin, water researcher, which is pretty funny, right? And what an amazing story. I've never heard of such a thing. Well, you get it all on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text 2057. What are your thoughts about this? Give it a whirl. Let us know how you get on and email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. That was Vita Austin, water researcher. Oh, my goodness. I really enjoyed that. That was so very, very interesting. I really enjoyed that interview, and I still don't quite know what to make of it. Freezing water, getting the shapes, having a memory. Sounds woo-woo, but is it really? Oh, well. There's more in heaven and earth than is ever dreamt of in our philosophy, I would say. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I always say we're blessed, but we're particularly blessed because this morning we have Western A. Price Foundation leader and eco-nutritionist. She's been on before. She's absolutely spellbinding and lovely. Phyllis Titchenen, good morning. Good morning, Rodney, and all of you folks out there in Radioland. Radioland. And it's quite funny because we call it radio, but it's sort of internet radio. I don't know how you describe that now. We're on the internet web thingy. Goodness knows how it works, but then I never knew how radio worked either. But tell me, you're on my one of my favorite topics, talking about one of my heroes and heroines, which is Dr. Weston A. Price and his wonderful wife. Florence, by the way. Let's Florence. not forget Florence. Florence was amazing. Mm. And what they did, and the book that they wrote, and I often get it round the wrong way. Is it physical degeneration and no, human it starts with nutrition? Nutrition, human nutrition, and physical degeneration is. It's just. Oops, how am I doing this? Just nutrition. Nutrition, nutrition and, physical and physical degeneration. degeneration. What a book! Yeah. I if anyone wants to, there's no other book to read on nutritional diet because everything else is fake in terms of not having the empirical basis, which was available to us through that one window. But, so I'm going to have to hold my tongue because I just get so excited about this topic. And I've got you on it who's an expert. 
Phyllis, tell us about the Western A Prize Foundation. I will, but I'll just say one of these days, Rodney, we should switch this around and I'll interview you on Western <laughs> A Prize. Would that uh, make you happier? Oh, goodness me. It is, um, it is, it is a just a great. So, who was Weston Price? Weston yeah. Price was a dentist. Um, he practiced in the 1920s and 30s and 40s in Cleveland, Ohio. And he was quite well known and respected in his day and, you know, was a science researcher at the same time he was a dentist. So, appeared in peer, you know, published in peer reviewed journals. Um, he was actually the textbook, he was the author of a textbook on dentistry that was used by the U.S. Navy at that time. And he was uh, also the head of the, what became the American Dental Association or the National Dental Association Research Lab with dozens and dozens of technicians working on this whole issue of dental caries and dental health in the United States in the 20s and 30s. And he was also known for his work on root canals that we discussed briefly last time. So as he's you know, going through his practice in a fairly well-to-do you know, city, Cleveland, Ohio, in the 20s and 30s, he gets more and more concerned about the increasing um, amount or numbers of dental caries or cavities that he's seeing in his well-to-do patients. And he was con particularly concerned about children coming in with narrow jaws and um, crossed teeth and more dental caries, weaker teeth, um, and what they then called dental deformities and, and you know what we now just say are crooked teeth or buck teeth or whatever. So um, more and more people, in his view, were beginning to come in with tooth decay and dental deformities, and because he also had medical training, he could tell that they weren't particularly healthy in other aspects of their life, like they had sinus problems, or they were getting sore throats and colds, or they had, you know, they had a funny gait, or they walked crooked, or you know, their jaws were narrowing, that sort of thing. And he um, was beginning to suspect that there might be. A, co a correlation there okay so it's interesting because he clearly was a keen observer and and it's one of those funny things about life isn't it that i i can be completely unaware of obvious things and then you meet these people who can just pick up discrepancies and these great people just great observers. Everyone else is just accepting that, oh, yeah, have cavities, have buck teeth, and carrying on. But he was saying, hang on, there's something here, which is that first question, isn't it? It is, and I have reason to think, from what I've read and observed and studies I've done of Weston A. Price's work, that a lot of the for want of a better term, a lack of accurate thinking that increasingly we are experiencing and people swallowing, pun intended, the narrative, various narratives throughout our life is a result of poor brain connections, okay, which mm. comes back to poor 
neural system, nerve system, um, brain matter function, all of which comes back for the most part to inadequate nutrition, lack of those essential fatty acids, vitamin A, D, K2, and conjugated linoleic acid that Price did his research on and that he found primitive. And uh, pardon me, I don't mean to be derogatory, and I put it in Mm. air quotes, but that is what we collectively in the Western world called people who were still, you know, isolated from modern commerce and were living in their traditional food and cultural ways. Okay, they lived tribally. And this is what Weston A. Price did that was so um, astonishing. Okay, he decided that he needed. Uh, oh, the other thing is he found he was hearing this. The 1910s, 1920s was a big era of um, adventure and exploration. You had people going to Antarctica, and you had people going, you know, places where we hadn't been before. And these stories were filtering back. And he had indicated that he was hearing people, these explorers or, or early um, adventurers, if you will, to remote places, come back and, and shake their heads in disbelief that they were seeing astonishingly healthy teeth. There's no dental decay. There were no dentists there, but these people had no need for them. So he wanted with this questioning in his mind, what's causing this increase that I'm personally seeing in my professional career? Is it related um, to their other health problems that I'm also seeing increase? And does that have something to do with their nutrition? So, you know, um, (laughs) he and Florence bundled themselves up, girded their loins, and went in the 19, late 1920s and early 30s over a 10-year period around the world to 14 different places looking at, in depth, the physical stature, health, um, dental health of these remote people and doing the sort of research that, as you mentioned, we can no longer do. We no longer have a control group that hasn't been exposed, oftentimes multiple generations, to what Price called the displacing foods of modern commerce. They didn't live near a you know, trading post or an outpost or larger towns where they could get um, white flour or um Crisco shortening, you know, sort of oils, fake fats, if you will, or sugars or preserved foods, like canned foods, canned peaches, canned fruit, that sort of thing. They didn't know what those were. They'd never seen them or used them. They were eating from their local natural landscape. And he found, just briefly, as a result, that they had astonishingly good dental health, very few cavities, like um, two to three cavities per thousand teeth, and in some instances, just one cavity per thousand teeth, which is unheard of. We all have multiple cavities in just one head for the most part. 
Oh, you and know. by the time by the time we're eight years yeah. old, yeah. Tell me, it's extraordinary because I recently had occasion to give an opinion on a beautiful movie taken in the 1920s in a New York street that had been colorized and sped up and it just looked like it was filmed yesterday. And the remarkable thing to my eyes and everyone else that sees it is the astonishing good health of people. There's no obesity. They all had full, full faces. But compared to now, it's a freak show if you went and took a picture of a modern mall. But he was picking up the dental cavities and the deformities in the bones even back then. They were sort of a harbinger of what was to of what had what was to come. Yes, absolutely. I mean he would he would if you put him in a Ricketon Mall or two double seven and had him observe young people walking through that mall, he and Florence wouldn't believe their eyes. He, he he was so intrigued by these reports, including things like pictures from early um, explorers in the National Geographic, mm. or or reports from early um, well anthropologists, if you will, um, like George Caitlin in the United States, who spent twenty or thirty years living with um, a variety of Native American tribes in North America and drawing pictures of them and and describing you know, their teeth as white and straight as piano keys um and, and just this you know rude good health excellent posture they they were just the epitome of um healthy homo sapiens so price was thought yeah i, I got to start out and he 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 went looking for people with beautiful teeth um and he wanted to answer two basic questions. First question was, was it true that these these um, primitive people had beautiful teeth? And if the answer was yes, he wanted to know what were these people eating? Was he going to find a link between what they were eating and their beautiful teeth? And short answer is absolutely he did. Um, in the 14 different places he went, and um, I've got a list of them here because there's so many. I don't want to leave anybody out here. But he took his camera, sometimes an, an actual you know, moving camera at that stage, and he went to isolated Swiss villages, um, the, the Hebrides off the coast of Scotland. Um, he went to Inuits in Alaska and northern Canada. He went to a variety of North American tribes, um, <clears throat> including in the Florida Everglades. He went to the South Sea Islands, so Vanuatu um, at that, and Fiji. He went to, uh, visited Aborigines in Australia, and he went up the east coast of New Zealand to, to um, view Maori in their traditional food setting, and the Peruvian and Amazon, Amazonian Indians and African tribesmen. So this guy in the early 30s was definitely a scientific globetrotter. And, and what he found when he did detailed dental examinations of everybody could, in the village, um, gave them physical examinations, 
and talked to them in detail about what their diet was and why were they eating what they were eating. Did they have a rationale for that? Um, he took samples of the food, preserved them, sent them back to the laboratory in Cleveland, Ohio, and analyzed them. And what he found was that, I mean, he had talking averages here because people didn't have exactly the same diet. You were not going to be eating the same thing in an isolated Swiss village as you were seaside in Fiji, for example, or in the middle of Africa or Amazon. But what he found was consistently those people were drawn to eating in their environment those things that were particularly high in animal fat whenever they could find it and in fish and insects as well. And what he ended up when he did all the calculations from all of those thousands of food samples from around the world, he found that you could look at just about any of those situations, no matter the fact that they were so different in their actual environment, those people with the beautiful postures and broad smiles and immaculate teeth and calm dispositions, they were getting four times more vitamins and minerals, well, four times more minerals in their diet, their general diet, than his Cincinnati, uh, sorry, Cleveland, Ohio dental patients. And what's more, they were getting 10 times more vitamin A and D and K2. And it really didn't matter whether they, once, I, once again, they were, they were in the Everglades or they were, you know, in um, Ruatoria. They were Isn't that amazing? Because it, I remember reading in that Swiss village, it was sourdough bread, butter, and cheese from their cows. They didn't eat a lot of meat because they need, they yep. kept they revered their sort of cows and kept their cows. In the Hebrides, it was fish, and oh, so as you went around and and the diet was amazingly varied because of the nature of where humans were living, but it had this consistency of um, animal fats and minerals. Tell me, I love the story of the Swiss village mm -hmm. because it's hard to imagine now that you, I forget the name of the valley, but there could be such a place so remote in Switzerland. Because yeah. it was my, way my up my understanding is that um, it was, I think they were able to get donkeys or small horses up there, but it was it was a foot trail yeah. into those villages, and it, they were completely cut off during the winter. And that they had defended it for hundreds and hundreds of years because there was only like one pass to get in and it was easily defended. And it just happened that he could fly by plane to Switzerland. There was a road had just gone in 
that he could get to, and then with donkeys or whatever, he could get up there. And here were these remarkable people living in this extremely tough environment and who were European. And I guess that helped because, you know, you're thinking, oh, well, maybe it's a genetic thing. But these were Europeans. And the story I recall was they were Catholic and they supplied the Swiss guards to guard the Pope because they were renowned for their physical prowess. They were definitely the yeoman of the bowmen. They were um, yes. very dynamic. The other part of that that I've heard mentioned is that here they are, you know, you have valleys that are just, you know, one mountain range over or one set of peaks over, still Swiss, um, and yet had been eating, you know, standard European process, comparatively processed food at the time, white flour, that kind of thing. And the um, the young men from the Loenchau, I think it's pronounced valley, were, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, those guys are coming down to our, you know, our uh, sports day. Damn it, we're, you know, they're all going to win, you know, we might as well yeah. go home now. Because there was even known at that stage to be a marked difference in their physical endurance, their speed, and their prowess. And, and, and what... Weston A. Price and his wife could be inspecting an older person, like a mum or a dad, or dad typically, because this is how it would go. And he could look at them and say, you haven't always lived in this valley, have you? Right. And they would have had two years in Rome. And he could tell that they'd eaten processed food all yep. these years later. Yep. There's definitely a link between nutrition and just every aspect of our bodily function and health. I mean, it's what we're dealing with now is is, is you know, two or three or four, sometimes six or seven generations of Geigo, you know, the old um, early computing form um, meme about processing garbage in G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. You, know, you can't expect to get a good computer program if you're just programming garbage in. And the nutritional density and the quality of what we eat and how many contaminants or error codes comes with absolutely determines our running program, if you will, our hardware and our software for our own bodies and our bodily function. The other two other dramatic stories from the book was in the Hebrides, I believe it was. There were two villages. One had become a trading port and the other hadn't. Do you recall that? And one was... I didn't. You, you mentioned this last time, but yeah, go yeah. ahead. And one was the picture of rude good health, mm -hmm. and the other one suffered tuberculosis, poor teeth, crooked teeth, buck teeth, because what we now know is maternal nutrition, when you're carrying a baby 
is crucial to the jaw and hip development for the soon-to-be infant. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what Price found consistently across the board, despite all of these racial and environmental differences in these um, tribal groupings, were excellent health, no degenerative disease, broad faces and big, wide dental arches, next to no cavities, very few birthing difficulties, and mellow, curious, generous, peaceful people. We have to contrast that with you know, what we are experiencing now with ever-declining health statistics that mirror the decline in the nutrient density, the vitamin and mineral content of the foods we are growing. Combined with our um, imposed narrative of the last 70 or 80 years that saturated animal fats and the attendant cholesterol are demonic, that they are bad for our health, and that they cause heart disease. I mean, this there were doubts about this hypothesis from the very beginning. It has been repeatedly challenged and found to be lacking and found to have been literally manipulated and funded by the sugar industry and the vegetable seed oil industry to, um, you know, they started blaming red meat, um, fat, and cholesterol for the decline, you know, the rapid increase in heart attacks and degenerative heart disease starting from the 1910s and 20s when suddenly our sugar consumption went up and vegetable seed oil and cotton seed oil um, started substituting isn't for butter and lard. Yeah. Isn't that shocking? Like, mm. we we talk of scandals around COVID, yeah. but these scandals go way back. The scandal of Ansel Keys, because he was the researcher that said saturated fat gives you heart, heart attacks. When he first presented that, the researchers in the medical field fell about laughing because it was so preposterous, and yet it was pushed by um, cereal companies, the sugar manufacturers, um, the refined food people, everyone that wanted to give you breakfast in a box compared to having uh, traditional bread with traditional butter, thick with cream, uh, having uh, bacon and eggs, yeah. and it was pushed and pushed, and now... We, we fall about because you still get little kids saying, oh, you know, bacon and eggs, can't eat them, putting salt on it. Oh, that's bad for you. Here, have this box, have the cereal in a box. Because look, on the back of it, there's a guy doing a triathlon. So this is what's healthy. And you're thinking, it's so funny because I was brought up that way. Mm -hmm. That's what you thought and you didn't question it. Yeah. But it's as soon as you see it, it's so absurd to think that a factory can make food, put it in a plastic bag and put it in a box and market it and convince you that this is healthy and what we've been eating for thousands of years is bad for you. It's an extraordinary achievement. I just, I, yeah, I have to chuckle because otherwise I start crying. But, uh, you know, one of the things I'm, you know, increasingly, you know, find myself saying 
just to help people wake up a little bit is to just say, and how's that working for you? Yes. How is that working for us? Clearly, it is not. With every generation, we are losing face width. We have a massive increase in chronic inflammatory disorders like asthma and rashes and eczema and um, allergies in increasingly younger children. Many, like the majority of children in at least the U.S. and similar to here, um, grade schools are on some form of continuous medication for chronic disease. I mean, that's unheard of. I mean, who, when we were going through school, even knew what an EpiPen was? No. I mean, we, we clearly have a deterioration. And I'm sure some people will say, and they did back in the day. Well, so... What's so wrong with having crooked teeth? You know, you just go to an orthodontist, you get that fixed. That's not a problem, right? It really doesn't matter. Can't we just fix it with braces? But the things that are associated with children, people who have crooked teeth and narrow jaws are narrow nasal passages, which means they tend to get more frequent infections. We do mouth breathing. We get sleep apnea all of which have even larger flow-on effects in terms of our health. We tend to have, with crooked teeth, we tend to have constricted ear canals. So more frequent hearing problems and ear infections. Um, we have, and this is one that gets me, reduced surface area in our lungs if we have crooked teeth. So there's the link to asthma, bronchitis, and more chest infections. We tend to have digestive disorders, so leaky gut and Crohn's also on the rise. We have bone problems because we're not laying down bone properly. That's what is the initial in the womb cause of the narrowing of the jaw that causes the crooked teeth, okay? So bone is a problem, one of the big problems when we don't get enough vitamin A, D, and K2 in the uterus when we're um, in that first you know, nine months and before. So with bone problems, flat feet, um, hip and knee problems, splayed out gates, and easily broken bones. I can't believe the number of times kids are just falling down, minor falls from which they should bounce for the most part, and they end up breaking something. This is a lack of bone tissue integrity caused by, put it bluntly, not enough eggs and butter in our breakfast, not enough seafood, and a whole host of processed foods, including extruded grains like you know, the cereal in a box that we eat that can literally pull minerals like calcium and magnesium and other critical trace elements out of our bodies when we eat them, unless they're prepared properly. And very, very few of us are eating them properly prepared. And certainly, if you're coming out of a box, um, they haven't been adequately soaked and fermented um, to 
get the, the inhibitors or the um, phytic acid out of those grains or legumes. So we, we, not only are we not putting in enough of the good stuff, we're putting in a whole bunch of bad stuff that is making the problem even worse. So it all does come back to nutrition and nutrient density. And, you know, from my slanted view, farming. Well, it's possibly pre-COVID, this would be a harder message to sell. Yeah. Because you have to believe in either greed and profits, overwhelming truth, that politicians are swayed by big companies to make policy and uh, food announcements about good food. And, I mean, the funny thing is you and I will chortle about this because the food pyramid didn't come out of the medical fraternity, but it came out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which tells you everything that we need to know about the food pyramid. These are extraordinary things that when you first come across them, you can't quite believe that there could be so many bad actors involved and that the bad actors would overwhelm the obvious truth and the research facts and experiences of humankind, but they do. And those, you know, you don't advertise bacon and eggs, you demonize them and you advertise hornies in a, in a, in a box and put in a wee toy to boot for the kids. This is terrible, Phyllis, isn't it? I'm getting upset all over again just talking to you about it because what they've done to us, to you and me, mm-hmm. and to our listeners and to our, and our, our world around us, it's quite true when I'm away and I'm not having my bone broth or my Western A price food, I start getting, what's the word? Like tense, nervy. Yeah. Um, I'm not emotionally stable. Yeah, and, and as soon this- as I as soon as I have some decent food, I calm. Mm-hmm. And and this was highlighted by Price's um observations that all of these people on their traditional high um vitamin and mineral naturally diets. Um, were very calm and mellow and curious and intelligent. And they were happy. Mm -hmm. And they had big dental arches. It was easy for them to smile. Smiling is very therapeutic. I mean, we we get, we've allowed ourselves to buy into, um, you know, the more is better in so many areas. Um, More consumption, um, more work. And yet, you know, we're not seeing an increase in overall health or happiness or, um, you mm. know, positive relationships or world peace or, you know, reductions in greed or, or generally better environmental quality. So once again, I have to ask, 
you know, how is this approach that we're, this path that we're on where we believe that and most people eat some large part of their daily diet is processed foods, which are dead as a doornail and with an absolute minimal amount of actual nutritional value simultaneously laden with carcinogenic vegetable seed oils, mm. carcinogenic and mutagenic pesticides. And you just wonder, well, yeah, no wonder. No wonder we're not healthy. And it's difficult to think altruistically, to think clearly, to think of others in effect, and be involved positively in trying to make things better if you're, you know, pretty much sick all the time. So because the displacing effects of what did he call it? Displacing displacing foods foods of of modern modern commerce. Commerce. Yeah. Yes. Which is white flour and sugar and seed oils, I guess. Now a a couple of things. Mm These things travel down generations because we now know that, like, a baby forming in the womb needs good nutrition around uh, for mum. And scarily, that all her eggs are formed in the womb. It goes beyond that. It goes... Literally to the third generation, yes. because the eggs that are in the baby yes. that's forming in the mother's womb are also um, impacting Affected. the eggs of the next generation. Yes. There is so there are a, linkages there. Yeah. When a wee baby girl is born, all the eggs she'll ever have are in her body. That's right. Isn't that extraordinary? It is extraordinary. It's a huge responsibility yes. to eat. Um, and that's another thing. Bounteously when pregnant or before pregnant. Now, that's something to stress. Traditional Rodney. cultures, yes. Um, just to put the fear of God in everybody here. Um, I was just reading last week about vitamin A. One of the main things that that prices uh, on about, if you will, um, vitamin A from egg yolks, um, fine from cod liver oil, the things that we, we used to eat several generations ago, any form of animal liver, butter, and well, except with the cod liver oil, all of those meat animal products need to be from grass-fed animals. We can go into this why grass-fed is so important another time. But it's New Zealand's, you know, ace in the hole here in this. It's paradise. And it's paradise. And we need to be doing it in a way that is genuine, that we can document that what we're producing from our grass-fed animals, including chickens, is of verifiably higher quality and consistently so. Okay, we we can no longer make these grass-fed claims, um, and and think it will stick with our major, very savvy young professional mother of two children in the United States or Japan or Europe or wherever. We have to document that. So, um, 
that that vitamin A is found in things that for the last, you know, 80, 90, 100 years, we have been told not to eat or eat less of, okay? And we've substituted harmful foods, processed foods. Vitamin A needs to be in the mother's body prior to her getting pregnant in bounteous amounts, okay? Like lots and lots. Um, because within the first week when the egg meets the sperm um, in the fallopian tubes, that, this is even before it's moved into the uterus, that egg is beginning to divide. And it starts out with stem cells. And one of the, and the stem cells, you know, by the beginning of week two, the stem cells are already differentiating into nerve cells, heart systems, um, those kinds of things. Okay. So those very first critical divisions need to be whole and complete and optimal for the immediate formation of that tiny, tiny embryos body being cells and systems. And that translates on to their, their structure for the rest of their life, okay, for the most part. Those differentiations cannot properly occur without adequate vitamin A, which is part of the reason that we're seeing a lot of infants born with heart problems My or goodness. nerve problems. And that's even before we get to the teeth. We have to have these essential fatty acids, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin K2, in both parents for at least six months before and, conception. And traditional societies had that. Before a young woman would marry, special food. They knew they'd keep the best. The sp I remember in the Swiss Alps, they'd have that spring-fed butter mm -hmm. that they would keep aside because it was. they didn't know this. They didn't know what vitamin A was. But they knew that that spring-fed butter was special. They'd keep it aside, and they'd feed it to the young, fertile woman. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. And I mean, it's pretty gloomy and we see the results around us all the time yes. in terms of poor nutrition. However, there is hope. There is recovery. Absolutely. And especially with small children fed um, nutrient-dense diets, we can make big positive changes and inroads in even in dental arch width and the quality of their bones, but it means some substantial, consistent alterations to our food consumption. So if I'm at home listening to this and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, and you and I, Phyllis, most people in the Western Apis a prize society that I meet, which is a wonderful organization, which we have to discuss, because if you're interested in this, you should become a member. It's wonderful and get the newsletters 
most people that I met that were members of the society had actually suffered from chronic disease and it had, they got no relief from traditional medicine. They turned to Western A. Price amongst many, many things they tried, changed their diet, and actually recovered. Yes. And these are dramatic testimonies over and over and over that you meet as a member of the Western A. Price um, Foundation. Foundation. Yeah. Now, so what are the... So if it, 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 it brings the question. So what, you know, here we, we're, you know, burbling on and waxing enthusiastic about this. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's, in, I want to say, and start that with what are the three key principles of yes, what please. Weston A. F Price found um, with the basis for these 14 different and disparate examples of healthy traditional diets. And they were, First and foremost, clearly, no processed foods. So no displacing foods of modern commerce. There was animal foods, a variety of types, in every diet, and they were prized. And there was nutrient density. There were high levels of vitamins and minerals. Okay, so, you know, one of the big ones in there is animal products. Okay, well, we're supposed to be eating less red meat, and certainly seafood is getting harder and harder to access. Um, this can create some challenges here. So when when Weston A. Price you know, says animal products, he was talking about fish and shellfish, including the organs and the oils and the bones and the heads. This is what we now call you know, nose-to-tail eating. You eat mm. everything. It's become a big thing in fancy restaurants. And he found the best bone structure among those eating seafood, which is why he makes several references to Maori on the East Coast being some of the healthiest, um, most beautiful people on the planet. And this was and you know, reflected was... by the early um, explorers as well, yes. the scientists saying, the healthiest... wow. The healthiest people on the planet, mm -hmm. and when the displacing food of modern commerce arrived, plus alcohol, yeah. the loss in their health and motivation was absolutely criminal and dramatic. Well, and it was within a, it within it was within a heartbeat. Hmm. And there was uh, suddenly the the reports went from how wonderful, healthy are these people to what is wrong with them. There are way we can recover. Tell us what I'm listening at home. Okay. I'm listening at home. What can I do tomorrow for myself and my kids? Okay. Now I would say the first thing is to stop eating consuming in any form, and that includes in processed foods, any form of vegetable seed oils. Okay, now, go, oh my gosh, you know, what, what does that actually mean? It means you go to your cupboard, you open it up, and you remind yourself that all of these industrial seed oils are 
one form or another, inflammatory and toxic. Okay, so stopping all industrial seed oils, when I say that, that means canola, soy, corn, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, grapeseed, and margarine spreads. Okay, none of these are natural oils. They've all been highly processed under, you know, varying amounts of very high heat, extreme pressures, and chemical extractants and deodorants and bleaches, including hexane, um, which is a decided carcinogen. Hexane is just nasty. You don't want any amount of hexane coming through in your oils. And these oils are what we have been programmed to consume on the notion that they are low in cholesterol, they're not saturated animal fats, therefore they're better for our heart. The actual scientific facts and nutrition is just the opposite. We need for heart health the fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and K2 that are in tallow, pork lard, butter, ghee, egg yolks, all of those things. So um, seriously, I mean, I know several rural families who were <laughs> the, the son and the father farmers were gloating about the fact that um, the wife and mother was going to be going away for a week or so, and they were going to get out the deep fat fryer and go down and get some beef tallow drippings from bunch of them from the supermarket and eat deep fat fried food every day she was gone. And I, at that stage, I kind of looked at them funny. I thought, oh, this is, this is a little strange. I hadn't quite gotten on to the, the real dangers of um, these deep fat frying industrial seed oils. And everyone said, oh, deep fat frying is bad. Yes, it's bad if you have, you're using these industrial seed oils, which most fast food um, places actually do use, but you can find those that use tallow and ask, you know, when, when you, when you put this, when you put that fat into the fryer, are you pouring it in or are you dumping it in in a block? And if they say we dump it in this big whitish yellowish block, that's beef tallow. That's a health product. Okay. So don't, you know, go eat as, you know, fish, fried fish and potatoes if you must um, as your form of processed food, but make sure that it is a saturated animal fat. Okay. So all number of those one. things, number one, number, number two, two, stop eating breakfast cereal. Okay. Those are um, extruded grains, like all of those boxes on the supermarket aisle, and even including granola, although it's not excluded unless it has been soaked and to a certain extent fermented, those cereals will pull minerals out of your body. They have, um, through their phytic acids, and they have enzyme inhibitors. We need enzymes to digest our food properly. And we're putting enzyme inhibitors into our stomach and our small intestine with our cereal. Not a good idea. This is why Traditional cultures 
soaked their porridges or made fermented in some form or another all grains they ate. So, you know, get back to the um, the lamb chops or at least the eggs and bacon um, and butter for breakfast. Okay. And the third thing I would say to stop is stop drinking any grain or nut-based sugar and vegetable oil-laden alternative milks. Okay, just stop. They are high in sugar. They all have damaging oils in them, and they carry next to no actual nutrition. They have no vitamin A and vitamin D unless it's added. Um, Drink water if you are thirsty, but move away, especially away from soy milk, okay, which is very, very high in estrogen and in phytic acid and in GMO constructs for the most part, unless it's organic, and in um, pesticides, mostly herbicides like glyphosate. So you should be, especially for children, looking for raw milk. And raw milk um, gets a bad rap, and I hope we can do a whole session on real raw milk. But ultimately, um, we have an amazingly good access to raw milk, even though it's limited, here in New Zealand. And I encourage people to look on the Weston A. Price website for their local chapters. There are New Zealand chapters with contact details. The job of a Weston A. Price chapter leader is to know where to get raw milk in her district or region if it's available. And by raw milk, we mean unpasteurized, non-homogenized milk. Uh, Grass-fed and preferably organic. Mm. Those things do exist. And I promise you, I never drank milk my entire adult life. And when I read about Western A. Price, I researched through my Western A. Price chapter and I found raw milk. I, honest to goodness, it was like buying, um, you felt like you were buying whiskey in Prohibition, you know, the process because to find this place to get raw milk. And I came home with this raw milk and I sat there and I had a glass of milk before going to bed. I could not believe the taste. And I drank, I would never drink that watery rubbish that we get in the supermarket. I drank this milk and it was like being a little kid again. It was real milk. And the taste, and I slept. And here's the other thing I discovered, and I'm not the best exemplar, but I found if I ate the Western A. Price diet, I was satiated. If I eat the processed food, I'm forever hungry. And this is part of the explanation that contributes to um, the obesity because they're um, not and, get, they're hungry because they're not getting the nutrition, and we don't tend to get the signal for satiation. Our mm. bodies say, "Okay, we, we've had enough. Time to stop now." 
some combination of those two um, really is causing problems. We have so much to discuss. We've got bone broth, which is so easy to make, and it adds such great flavor to your food. But here's a unsung hero in all of this. We've got Weston and Florence Price. We have, of course, the indomitable Sally Fallon, mm -hmm. who's the, set up the Weston A. Price Foundation, wonderful. But her co-collaborator, who sadly passed away, Mary Enig. What a wonderful woman. Wasn't she? She was She was a, a stalwart. I was going to say a warrior, but I... Um, she was quite a calm, centered person, and she'd have to be considering the um, scientific um, beat up that she received when she started challenging the uh, nutritional mainstream with her discovery of the harms of trans fats. And she was proven right. And she was proven right. Trans fats were the thing to be eating, and then they they had to admit that Mary Inig was right, and the tragedy of, of it was they admitted that she was right about trans fats, but she was wrong about everything else. <laughs> what a terrible but, world. Uh, what I, I was heartened by, um, I've listened to an interview of, of Mary Inig describing uh, when she was called up at the University of Maryland in the lipids department or the nutrition department there, this would have been in the in the mid to late seventies. And the um, there were two representatives from the vegetable seed oil or the lipids association, oh, something like that. Okay, there, um, and they in the presence of her supervisor and the other professors or whatever, um, were very jolly about the whole thing. And they it, were talking about her, her you know, peer-reviewed journal article that had come out and that this would never do. And they really couldn't believe it because, you know, one said, you know, I was supposed to be looking at all of these journals to making sure nothing um, that countered our narrative about how great vegetable oils were came through. And this guy here, he was supposed to be looking at all those other ones. And we messed up and we missed stopping, in effect, your article before it was published. So, you know, just don't do anything like that again, or we'll yank your university funding. And to the credit, it gives me hope, the University of Maryland turned their back on the vegetable seed oil industry. They did not fire Mary Enig, and they never got any more money for nutritional research from that industry. It's wonderful, people listening, that they can dramatically change their diet very simply, just by the three steps that you outlined, and a whole new world uh, opens up to you, and literally... You feel better in days. Oh, one of the things that I find interesting too is, is that we have, God, how many fad diets have there been? I mean, every week there's another fad diet, you know, eat this, eat that, don't eat that. And I've got a funny view that most diets work because they involve cutting down on processed food. And um, processed food is 
It's our food supply right back to our soil that we're struggling against. Yeah. Oh, Phyllis Titchenen, we're going to have you on as a regular. We feel so blessed that you're on the planet. We feel so blessed that you're here in New Zealand. We're triply blessed that you'll come on our show and share with us your knowledge and experience. Tell us about the great people whose shoulders we can climb up on and peer out into the into the distance and dramatically improve our lives. You've done a huge amount of work in the New Zealand dairy industry, which we haven't touched upon, but we will. But thank you. Thank you so very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Rodney. And to everyone listening, we've gone through um, you know, the last four years of having, as we used to say, the scales drop from our eyes about a lot of things. And if we want to be up for the play and up for being healthy and having beautiful, intelligent babies and better systems, better politics, all of those things require us to to be healthy enough um, to take up the challenge, to Here think accurately. And nutrition is all about that. So eat more New Zealand butter. It's good for you. There we go. That's Rally Check Radio. Real talk with Rodney Hyde. We should be calling this real food because that's what the discussion is, eating real food, not the Utsak food, not the fake food that comes in a box, but the real food that New Zealand produces and can produce in absolute abundance. And we're living in the land of plenty here with our butter and our meat. And don't forget the organs, the bones, the bone broth, and the flavour is exquisite. I pour, I pour bone broth over everything, make gravies and make sauces, and quite ordinary food becomes beautiful with a beautiful sauce. But more on the cooking uh, next time because we can talk about Sally Falloon's wonderful book. Uh, what is it called, Phyllis, that one? Traditional Nourishing yeah. Traditions. Nourishing yeah, Traditions. It. Oh, my goodness, what a cookbook that is. It's basically French food because the French are such great chefs and cooks and it's that nourishing food that you can get uh by cooking traditionally um yeah. and just a final plug rodney i really um i'm going to repeat the western a price foundation yes. website yes. um link it's western a price all one word and that's spelled w e s t o n no space, the letter A, and then price, P-R-I-C-E dot org. And it is a goldmine of easily accessible uh, and understandable information about wise traditional eating. There we have it. The wonderful, fantastic Phyllis Titchenen sharing her knowledge with us. I'm sorry, listeners. I know I talk too much, but it gets so excited. And I actually get angry. I get angry with myself because you buy into the rubbish that you get taught. You can't believe. You can't believe that for decades and decades and decades, let's make no bones about it, we've been lied to. 
and led astray. It's just affecting us and it's affecting our children and we can turn it around tomorrow. We just have to be armed with the knowledge and the discussion and we can make a huge difference in all our lives and all our thinking and even our emotions. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Lovely to have you along, Phyllis. We'll talk soon. Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text, 2057, email me inbox at Radio. Our universities, I think, are rotten. And I'm coming to the conclusion that they're rotten from the top down. You recall way back in 2018 that Dr. Don Brash was denied the opportunity to speak at Massey University. He'd been invited by the Politics Club to come and speak and to talk about his time as leader of the National Party. Dr. Don Brash had been the governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, a very successful governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. He went on to become an MP and the leader of the National Party. He was to talk about that his experience in politics. Massey University Vice-Chancellor Jan Thomas initially said, by the way, he was banned from speaking by her one day before he was to speak. He'd already paid and bought his tickets. The vice-chancellor had been discussing how to ban him for nearly a month in emails before then. Things that she was discussing was how could we stop him speaking or maybe we could deny funds to these groups that invite contentious people to speak. Yeah. In the finish, she opted for health and safety because there'd been, quote, a threat. There was no threat. It was like someone said, oh, free speech has consequences. Uh-oh. Stop the talk. Ban Don Brash. When in the emails, she revealed that she felt his speech was, mm, tending towards the racist end of things because he had headed up Hobson's pledge. So in this upside-down world from this Vice-Chancellor Jan Thomas, if you are calling for everyone to be treated equally, irregardless of their colour of their skin, then you're a racist. Uh, that would mean that Martin Luther King Jr. was a racist. The desegregationists were racists. Really? Well, that's what the implication is, right? And that she said they couldn't have Don Brash there because to do so um, would contra contradict the university being a, quote, treaty-led university. Begins the treaty to have Don Brash speak <laughs> at the university. And, of course, here we have it last week. We had Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, Professor Nick Smith. He came out and he said, oh, 
David Seymour's got it wrong. He's suggesting that universities should favour free speech, and if they don't, there will be funding implications. Nick Smith, the vice chancellor, is against this because this is how he explains it. He wrote this in stuff, the post, whatever they call it now, I can't keep up, but it was sent to me. He said, quote, this is from Nick Smith, vice chancellor. The problem is that today, he said these formats, that is to say discussions that used to happen at university, have been replaced by harsher versions. So it used to be so nice and friendly, but now it's harsher where protagonists often shout at each other from ever more extreme positions, each asserting they occupy the higher ground. So his view is that debate now wasn't like it used to be. It's now people shouting at each other, and therefore we can't have it. And that's because this shouting at each other is creating an environment where the reputational risk is just too high for many with views that contain shades of grey that cannot be captured in a soundbite. That doesn't even make sense. This is creating an environment where the reputational risk is just too high for many with views that contain shades of grey that cannot be captured in a soundbite. So Don Brash is speaking, and I've got a view that opposes him, but I can't capture it in a soundbite. Therefore, that could ruin the reputation of the university. Therefore, stop Don Brash speaking. The result is that those occupying the middle ground are stepping back from the publicly contributing to discussions fueled by social media. This is Nick Smith. This dynamic is creating an acrid cocktail of opinions that are too often conflated with the identities of their authors. In the process, evidence is being discarded by those with little interest in listening to others or evolving their position. The result is that important topics are not discussed or understood from multiple perspectives, and the route to ultimate resolution has accordingly become even more difficult. It's a funny thing, though, isn't it? Because the university's only been one side of the debate the conservative side, the side that stands up for Western values, the side that stands up for treating everyone equal before the law. And when you look at it, the people that are promoting those views are always very reasonable because that's their philosophy. You can't imagine Don Brash shouting at anyone. Oh, but his opponents... Very, very shouty. You can't imagine Don Brash not listening to someone from the other side. The other side, they don't want to hear Don Brash. They don't, they don't want just not to hear him. They don't want anyone to hear him. That's why they want him banned. And it seems that Professor Nick Smith, Victoria University, along with Massey University, is concurring. Nick Smith goes on, Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, today with more powerful and pervasive dissemination technologies, our next period of information overload could be longer and more intense. So we can't have people like Don Brash speaking at the university because he'll contribute to information overload. Mm. This has the potential to be catastrophic. So 
gone brass speaking in university could be catastrophic as we face existential challenges ranging from the geopolitical polarization to climate stability. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really scary. The climate's not stable. Don't let people speak at the university because they might upset the climate or lead to geopolitical polarization. So what we'll do is we'll take certain views, I don't know, pro-Israel, mm, pro-free market, mm, uh, not worry, saying that the CO2 is a scam, we'll exclude them from the university because we face existential challenges. We just can't have people talking willy-nilly. For these reasons, it is more important than ever that we can trust universities. So in this period of big debate, it's important that we can trust university, universities to help us again separate informed debate from the shouting, support differences of perspective that can be sustained yet still respected, and comfortably hold gaps in our understanding until they're able to be filled with evidence to everybody's satisfaction. It is for these reasons that I very much hope Minister Seymour will think more deeply about these issues and join the university sector in our efforts to rebuild trust in our universities and in turn trust them to help us isolate misinformation from information, polarisation from understanding and absolutism from nuance for all our futures. A law that requires a commitment to a free speech policy but which could make speech less free is not the answer. This guy swallowed Alice in Wonderland. So if you commit to free speech, you're going to get less free speech. So better that we don't have free speech, that we ban some. And what we do is we let the universities, like people like Professor Nick Smith, they will decide what is misinformation and what is information, what is polarizing and what is not, what is absolutism and what is not. And they'll do so for all our futures. And Don Brash, mm, he's all those bad things we decide. Our universities are rotten from the top down because they should be absolute bastions of free speech and also how shocking is that that Professor Nick Smith uses the example of people who are shouty and won't listen to others when the most high-profile banning from a university was Dr. Don Brash, who's unfailingly a gentleman. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at radio. Thank you so much for listening and being along. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh! Good part of the day.
makes my morning. Oh, and all the guests and you listening. But it's my mailbag. I get to read feedback. Uh, the Barry Brill. Remember we had him on about we were gonna we're gonna spend thirty billion dollars on projects overseas. Something about because it makes the climate better. Here's what people say. I'm okay with the $30 billion on climate change BS if the money comes out of their parliamentary wages. That's from Tracy. There's a good one. Rodney, here's a thought. If the money is a donation, then it should be voluntary. If the taxpayer should contribute, why not get the IRD to provide a special tax code to allow every taxpayer to opt in or out of making a payment towards this donation? Great idea. In fact, why stop there? We should make all of our way they spend the money a little donation. Ah, because I'd cut back on quite a few things that government's wasting money on. This isn't the problem. Just get out your red pen and cancel this whole stupid idea that doesn't exist in reality. Now let's put in place a fund to sort out stormwater drains and safe water for people in the country. Keep up the great work, Rodney. Let's be the first country to reverse the stupidity and set the example for so many other countries who think this is all bad science and are waiting for a front runner to stand up and lead the way. Oh my goodness, wouldn't that be something? just to have Christopher Luxon stand up and says, I've looked at it, it's rubbish, we're not doing it, it's all over. Oh, let's get the reality of this bad science out to the public. Let's concentrate on what we can do to help New Zealand and our Pacific neighbours. Keep our neighbours and friends close and set the example. Add to this a complete withdrawal from the UN and the WHO. I agree. Let's start the avalanche back to common sense from Bonnie. Well done, Bonnie. Can I ask if the country receiving has to prove the emissions are lower by the amount we pay for? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be a total boondoggle. Thank you, Rodney. I've been listening to some of your replays. The interview with Barry Brill about the carbon credits and what the Adern government signed New Zealand up to is horrifying and will surely bankrupt the country. Rodney's reflections on his life and the environment, wonderful. Thank you, Francis. Thank you so much, Francis. Oh, and remember we had... Uh, Jonathan Ailing on, Free Speech Union. Hi, Rodney. I love wearing my gang patch. It's a rally check T-shirt. People are intimidated and cross the street. <laughs> I can imagine. Oh, I'm going to be going through the airport later today with my rally check outfit on. Should I be arrested for that? I know it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but if you ban one, you have to ban them all, and we should all end up naked. Love the show. Keep up the good work, Trevor. <laughs> oh dear me hello Rodney while I agree that banning gang, gang regalia doesn't help with the gang violence it should set an example to forbid freedom of expression I still feel the need to say that for us women seeing gang patches means a person has earned the patch with raping and violating women quite that puts it in perspective the common patch ceremony is putting women on oh yeah no we don't want to hear about that um but yes, not nice. While I agree with the Free Speech Union, I'm so intimidated by the gang patches presence in our community. The most intimidating are actually those men who have not earned their patch yet. At least with the patch members, you see who they are. Good work, Rodney. Best wishes. Ju Maria. Thank you. Hi, Rodney. Jonathan Ailing would like everyone to do whatever they like when they like. He's confounding a law with the word salad and BS. Go suck eggs, Mr. Ailing. He has done very little for anyone, and his argument about what is a gang patch is, again, BS. We need laws in this country that have a bit of common sense and the use of biblical principles. Well, I agree with that. 
There's a militia here in this country, and it's the gangs, I believe, just waiting on a word from Willie Jackson and co to do their dirty work. I concur with that too. I believe in free speech like everyone else, but please, with a bit of common sense and some biblical principles, like I said before, we all knew in the 40s, 50s and 60s what was common sense and law-abiding, but we seem to have lost those morals and those principles. We weren't backwards. We were useful, common-sense people. Jonathan needs to take a stand, just like the human rights. Actually, the human wrongs people do on something. Anything would be good. Just my opinion, Rodney. Cheers. My best fan, Mike from Foxton. Hi, Rodney. Just re-listening to your show from last week. I did want to comment about the discussion you had with Jonathan from the Free Speech Union when you implied that the police should know who gangs are and that obviously Rotary was it wouldn't be targeted. In reality, well, I do wonder, given how the cops are nowadays and especially after the Parliament protest police action, dead right too, that I could theoretically be arrested if the gang patch legislation gets through just for wearing my rally check T-shirt. <laughs> could that be considered gang too under the wrong type of policing? I agree entirely with Jonathan about how dangerous the legislation could become. Ara Hanui, Libby. P.S. There are actually a few of us Kiwi out there who have read Plato and John Stuart Mills, etc. Those of us with inquiring minds and others who were lucky enough to attend university in the late 90s and early 2000s when critical race theory, climate change and genealogy were not dominating all subjects. Good. Plato and John Stuart Mill. Brilliant. Politics explained, remember, with Tane Webster, democracy and Christianity will be the downfall of Western civilization because we have allowed this thing called immigration, which brings in people and don't share our value system, but are capable of using and abusing our society. Neither is TV1, which constantly uses the Maori names first, a complete finger to the government direction. Fire all the people involved. It's really time to get serious about the pushback from Bonnie. Good on you. Good on you, Rodney, for calling a duck a duck. As you say, government is not the saviour. Tane, good job as devil's advocate, John. Hi, Rodney. Love your talk today. Yes, I felt sick seeing Luxon cuddling up to the trans. Oh, yeah, remember that. I mean, I don't mind the trans people, but, you know, live your life. Knock yourself out. But stay away from our kids. Stay away from women's spaces unless a woman doesn't mind. But for it's such a overt attack nowadays on everything that's good and decent, and that Chris Luxon sees the need to parade around there like, "Look at me, look at me." Whatever. I feel sick seeing Luxon cuddling up to a trans him, they, her, whatever. Yet he's ignored the doctors, the nurses, the teachers, the plumbers, etc., all at the protest, and can't even look into the vax injured people. I can't believe he's good at all. Thank you, Robin. I agree. Thanks to Rodney. He said what I believe most New Zealanders are thinking about Luxon at present in today's podcast. So thanks, Rodney. No. Hi, Rodney. I didn't understand you in politics. I was quite young. But love your show and the balanced interviews. Well done. Well, thank you for that. Here we have a few odd ones for Rodney. Uh, it's uh, Stan Walker and Ziggy Marley. Oh, yes, Ziggy Marley came out and he had apparently supported Israel and therefore... They did an interview with him. He's Bob Marley's son. He's done a movie, and TVNZ stopped all the promos because of the pushback from the Hamas huggers. RFK Jr. on TV3, finally talking about RFK Jr. running for president. Has TV1 mentioned anything? 
why is our media so quiet on the subject of an alternative, Kinsley? Quite right. Rodney, the day that both Labour and National Parties in 1992 ratified the Resource Management Act was the day that one sector of society gained an enormous advantage over the rest. The Act implicitly states that Maori have guardianship rights over all natural resources. Kerry. Quite right, Kerry. Thank you so much. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at radio. Love getting your notes. Love getting your messages. And if you don't want me to read it out, you can just say for my eyes only for private, and I won't read them out. Thank you so much for writing in, because the feedback motivates me and empowers me, makes me love the show even more and do better. And it's encouraging for our guests because we pass on your notes. All the good ones anyway. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your notes. Keep them coming. 2057 email inbox at rallycheck.radio. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's been real talk with Rodney Hyde. What a great show. Vida Austin. I really enjoyed that water researcher. I didn't know quite what to expect. But wasn't that fascinating? And you know, I would have been, I was skeptical. Four years ago, I would have been highly, highly skeptical. But now I think, well, this is interesting. Let's hear this out. And I'm going to try it. Get a Petri dish. Put a little bit of water in it. Freeze it. See the interesting pattern. Take a picture of it. Wonder about it. It did look rather beautiful, just a pattern alone. Just nice doing the pattern, seeing the crystals form it. Different each time. And, of course, Phyllis Tichenham. And Western A. Price and traditional food and what we have done to ourselves and all our cleverness. We have learned not so much to grow food and catch food, but to produce food in a factory and put it in a box with a wee toy and someone fit and healthy on the outside, telling us how wonderful this is. Got all the specials we need. And we've bought it, lock, stock, and barrel. Mm -hmm. We need to get back to the way our great-grandparents lived and thrived and did so well and recover our health and our country's health. And with Phyllis' help, we will. Remember, send me a text 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio back Thursday. Thank you for being along for this morning. Talk soon. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.